Stop me if you've heard this one before. Back in June of 2014, uh, my wife and I were expecting our daughter, Ellie, and I was, I, I'd been working as an admissions officer for a college for the last five years. I was pretty good at my job, and I knew that I was good at my job because when our organization, when our university was up for reaccreditation, the renewal of our accreditation, uh, I was actually the one from my department who was selected to meet with the accrediting body. That's a that's not a that's not a small issue because if if I fumble this, we could lose our accreditation. Um, and immediately after that meeting, and the meeting went well. Immediately after that meeting, I get a phone call on my office phone. I'm invited to a conference room where I'm sat in front of an HR officer, and I'm given a packet, and I'm notified that my services here are no longer required. I was blindsided. If I'm honest, if I'm honest, it was totally my fault. Totally my fault. Uh, I was young and I was arrogant and it came through in my behavior around the office. I was a cancer. And they did what was right. Totally my fault. And in that season of life, I was a I was a full-time employee. I was a master's student. We were expecting with Ellie. Our lease was up on our apartment, but we didn't renew it because we were house hunting. So we had just moved in with my in-laws. And now this. I introduced more chaos into an already chaotic season of our lives. And I felt like a total loser. You ever, you ever felt that way? You ever felt like you ruined everything? That, that, that's where I was. Felt like I blew it. Now, this was June, so Father's Day is coming. So imagine my surprise when on Father's Day, Ebony presents me with what is probably still to this day one of the most expensive gifts I've ever received. And I protested. I, I, I said, we can't afford this right now. We're, we're looking for a house. I'm looking for a job. I'm, I'm, I'm in my master's program. We're, we're paying out of pocket. And she just looked at me and she said, what she said to me, I, I hope that I never forget. She calmly said to me, I trust you. You're a hardworking man. I want you to have this not because of what you do, but because of who you are to me. That was to this day. Now this was, again, 2014, nine years ago. That was to this day the most uh, meaningful gift I've ever received in my life. And the meaning of the gift had nothing to do with the price tag of the box. The meaning of the gift was behind her words. That it wasn't about the chaos I created. It was about the kindness that she wanted to show me. In the midst of a chaos I created in an already chaotic part of our life. I had created chaos, and I was met with kindness. I never forgot that, and I, and I hope I never do. Have you ever been there? Have you ever created chaos, and you were met with kindness? You received a kindness you did not deserve because you broke something. And you were expecting consequences and what you received instead was kindness. I hope you never forget that feeling. 
I hope you never forget that grace. Good morning, Resurrection Church. Grab your Bibles, open them to Genesis 3 this morning. Today we're beginning the first week of what's going to be a four-part Advent series. This is the first Sunday of the season that if, if you follow the church calendar, we call this season Advent. It's the, the four Sundays leading up to Christmas. We're beginning our Advent series that we've called Behold in Genesis 3. And it would be a strange place to start a Christmas series unless you understand what we're doing. We're tracing the, the use of this word behold, which by the way comes up all throughout scripture. It's not like we're doing something explicitly unique, but we're taking four instances of this word behold to track what will essentially be a gospel journey to the manger. What we want to look for is we want to look for the meaning behind the manger. There's more to the manger than what meets the eye. And if you don't understand the chaos that you created, you'll never appreciate the gift that you've received. You see what I did there? If you, if you cannot understand the chaos you've created, you'll never appreciate the gift you receive. The manger is God's response to the mess that we made. And if we don't get that context, if we don't understand that chaos, we'll never appreciate the gift. So we're going to trace the story of redemption that culminates in the manger through four movements. Today, we are going to behold our predicament. Next week, we are going to behold God's promise in light of our predicament. The following week, we will behold God's provision for the promise he made in light of the predicament that we made. And then finally, uh, on Christmas Eve, we're going to behold our Prince of Peace. The invitation to a peace that passes understanding. But before we get there, before we get to the gift of the manger, you have to behold the predicament. And what we'll see today in our time together is that like receiving a gift that we don't deserve, God deals with us not according to our chaos, but according to his character. Not according to our chaos, but according to his character. It's his loving kindness to us. The Bible says that it's out of his loving kindness that he's shown us his love. According to his loving kindness. So if you've found Genesis 3, I want to invite you on your feet. I'm going to give you a quick, just a one, two-sentence uh, perspective on where we're at here in Genesis 3. Uh, this is the end of what we understand to be the creation narrative. And so in Genesis 2, <clears throat> pardon me, my voice is like right there. And so I might sound like I'm 13 a couple times in this sermon. <laughs> You're just going to have to bear with me, pray for me. Uh, in Genesis 2, what we saw was Adam was entrusted with the garden and he's told to work it and keep it and he's given all of the trees of the garden of which he can freely eat except for one. He is not to eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. In the day that he eats of it, God has said, he shall surely 
die. You know the story. It is after that command, the order of, the order of operations here is important. It is after that command that Adam falls into a deep sleep and the Lord out of Adam creates his wife who throughout most of our story today will not have a name, but I'll just call her Eve because we all know that that's her name. But she isn't named until, at, until the end of Genesis 3, which is just interesting. So here we are in Genesis 3. Uh, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to warn you in advance. We're going to do the whole chapter. It's long. Dial in. There will be a couple times where I just drop out and you're going to pick up and you're going to read the next word just so that we stay together with this. It is important that we see the whole context of Genesis 3 and then we'll walk back through and unpack. So Genesis 3, chapter 1, reads this way. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were... I just wanted to see if you would say it. <laughs> and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, the woman... Just reading the text. <laughs> Fellas, does this feel familiar? <laughs> the woman who you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you've done? The woman said, the serpent. The serpent deceived me and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you've done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. Sorry, ladies. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. 
Eve means living. That's what the word means. So in the midst of the death sentence, Adam calls his wife living. There's a, a hope there. There's a trust in God there. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of what? Where did those come from? We'll get there, we'll get there, we'll get there. I'm I'm getting ahead of myself. And clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man at the east and at the east of the garden of Eden. He placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. We've got work to do, but before we dive in, would you just join me in prayer? Father, thank you for your word. Would it be to us today uh, a lamp for our feet and a light for our path? Uh, Would your word today be like a two-edged sword? Uh, Would it cut between Uh, soul and spirit, what is us and what is you? Would it help us to discern? Would it discern the thoughts and intentions of our heart? Would your word be to us today like a mirror? And as we gaze into it, I pray that you help us to see ourselves clearly, to see ourselves as we really are. And would you show us through your word today how deep and how wide and how high and how long is your love for us would you grant to us that we might see and know and grasp and appreciate the meaning behind the manger help us today lord would you meet with us for our good and for your glory it's in jesus name we pray all god's people agreed and said amen Amen. you may be seated behold our predicament created by God in his image for close, intimate fellowship and friendship with him. The only thing in all creation made to reflect his image to the rest of creation. Make no mistake, humanity is the crown jewel of creation. The only thing that bears the image of its creator. And yet, rebellion, disobedience, cast away from the garden for which we were made, cast away from the presence of God, destined now to die. Behold our predicament. It's been said that if there was no Genesis 3, there would be no rest of the Bible. If there were no Genesis 3, the rest of the Bible wouldn't need to exist. Because if if you think about it, the rest of the Bible chronicles the story of the consequences of Genesis 3 and God's plan to redeem us from the consequences of Genesis 3. What should stand out most clearly as we look at Genesis 3 
is the mercy and the kindness of God. Adam and Eve had a command and they knew it. And in the midst of their rebellion, in the midst of their failure, this merciful and kind king deals with them not according to their chaos, but according to his character. Because God deals with us not according to our chaos, but according to his character. It's not that we deserve mercy and kindness, but it is that he is merciful and kind. It's constitutionally who he is. It's irrevocable about him. All who come to him receive his mercy and his kindness. He turns no one down. Like, do you get that? He turns no one down. If you come to him asking for mercy and kindness, the answer is yes. He has it in abundant supply. We already know from Genesis 2 that God had given Adam clear boundaries. 2.16, you may surely eat of how many trees in the garden? Every. Every, every Every tree in the garden, all of them are good for food. Yep, all of them are good for food. And you can eat of all of them except one. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Now, Adam knows God. Seen him face to face. Adam and God are friends. They walk together in the garden. And God is the giver of every good thing. That's what Scripture teaches elsewhere in the book of James. Every good gift, every perfect gift comes from where? From the Father. So if Adam knows God, Adam knows good. Amen? Amen. So to eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and what could Adam possibly gain? A knowledge of evil. And what is the only human response to your awareness of evil? If you were aware that evil was in your home at 2 o'clock in the morning, what's your response? You don't want to answer? It's fear, isn't it? It's fear. The only human response to the knowledge of evil is fear. So what's God protecting them from? Is he protecting them from knowledge? Or is he protecting them from evil? He's protecting them from from evil. This was the command. Don't eat of it. In the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Now, if you pay close attention, when Eve recalls the command, she doesn't recall it exactly. And this is probably because the command was given to Adam. And Adam disseminates it to his wife. But we know she's aware because she can recite enough of it to get it wrong. She says, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it. God never said that. Lest you die. God didn't say don't touch it. He just said don't eat it. But the consequence is clear and she's aware of it. Death. So when the serpent shows up, and says, you will not surely die. All of a sudden, it's God's word against the serpent's word. And there's a choice to be made. Who do we follow? Who do we believe? Who do we trust? 
Eve's decision to obey and follow a voice that calls God a liar is the first step on the track to absolute chaos. This is the beginning of the undoing of the beauty of the garden is when Eve believes a voice that says that God would lie. This is a fast track to chaos, but fortunate for Eve and fortunate for you and for me. God deals with us not according to our chaos, but according to character. I think the deception of the serpent sounds preferable to Eve because it feels like freedom, right? What is this? It's the lifting of a restriction. Eve was told, you can have all this, but not that. And then the serpent says, surely you can have that. What is this? It's the lifting off of a restriction. It's the removal of a boundary. And Eve says, that feels like freedom. Doesn't it? Doesn't that feel like freedom? I think this is a lie that we are all too often prone to believe. The lie that freedom is found in the removal of all restriction. The removal of all boundaries, right? And so, and so here, what, what does freedom mean in our society? Freedom in our society means that we don't have to abide by the boundaries of what it means to be biological man and biological woman. We've removed those boundaries and now you're free, Right? We've removed the boundaries of what, what defines marriage. And, and, and now you're free. Finally, truly free, right? Wrong. We've, we believe, and so like, hey, I, and, and here's what I think is I think in so many subtle ways that aren't political talking points, you've believed this lie too. That it's the removal of boundaries that leads to freedom but we know from our experience that this is just patently false. Isn't it? Don't we know this? Have you ever committed to a discipline that required practice? Maybe a sport or an instrument or singing or anything, right? Who is the most free to express their craft? The one who casts off all boundaries and discipline or the one who submits to discipline and boundaries. Any athlete knows that it is the most disciplined athlete who's the most free on the field or on the court. Any athlete knows that. The most disciplined, the most bound, the most constrained with weight room time and practice time and track time and field time and film room time, the, the most constrained the most disciplined is the one who's the most free. We know this to be true. And yet somehow in our deceptive minds, we believe that in our spiritual life, it's somehow different. We'll be free when we remove all boundaries and all restrictions. There was a fascinating study done in 2006 by uh, the Association of landscape architects, something like that. Uh, and, and they did a, a study on children in parks. And they wanted to know uh, whether children in parks with fences behaved differently than children in parks without fences. And they found that when a fence around the park is present, children are more free to explore the whole park. They actually take up more space 
when there's a defined boundary. And when the boundary is removed, those children explore less of the park. They stay closer to the center because everyone knows that boundaries increase freedom. It is not the casting off of boundaries that grants freedom. It's abiding within those boundaries that produces freedom. Restrictions increase creativity. Boundaries produce freedom. You know this. If you want freedom at work, be disciplined. Be disciplined at your craft. Like if if you hate that your manager is constantly breathing down your neck, constantly checking in on you, it may be uh, just a fault with your manager's personality. I'm not saying that it, that it isn't, but you might want to take a good hard look at your work ethic and just ask, am I behaving in a way that is disciplined enough to warrant the freedom that I desire? Or do I constantly need someone breathing down my neck so that I'll do my job? You want freedom in your relationships, right? Like, so here, I have absolute freedom in my relationship with my wife, but it is because I have established a boundary. I do not meet one-on-one for any reason with another woman. I don't. And you might say that that's silly. You might say that that's foolish. You might say that that's patriarchal. I think that that is respecting her. I think that that is protecting my marriage. There is never a situation so serious that, uh, that, any woman needs to meet with me one-on-one. I can have Pastor Ed, Pastor James sit in on the conversation. I can have Cheryl sit in on the conversation and we can get the same thing done and probably more. I won't meet for lunch. I won't meet in my office one-on-one. Why? Because I've got this boundary. And what does that produce in my marriage? It produces freedom. It produces trust. Boundaries enhance freedom. It works in every facet of life. Your, your spiritual walk is no exception. You want to be free in the expression of your faith? Be disciplined with prayer. Be disciplined with Bible reading. Be disciplined with church attendance. And then when the opportunity comes up for you to share the gospel at the barbershop or at the grocery store, you will be ready. You will be free. But apart from expressing those boundaries, apart from submitting to those disciplines, your freedom will be hindered. Back to the story, it's worth noting. It's worth noting in this story, this is the first deception ever spoken. So no one has a paradigm for lying yet. This is the first deception ever spoken. And in the first deception ever spoken, the doctrine that's being challenged here is God's justice. It's God's right to judge. Surely you will not die. I mean, I know what God said, but he's not really gonna judge you. And that's maybe the best case scenario. The worst case scenario is that it's an indictment against God's person. He's not holy like that. Surely you will not die. What's being challenged here is his truthfulness and his justice. And the option that Eve has in front of her is to believe God or to believe the serpent. You will not surely die in Hebrew. I love this. I don't don't like doing this, but I love this. Because if you've been coming the last couple weeks, I think you already kind of have a hint at what I'm about to say, and I'm going to ask you to fill in the blank. Here is the way that that line would read exactly if you translated it word for word from Hebrew into English. It's dying, you will not die. 
Now, in the Hebrew language, my Bible scholars, repetition is a linguistic device that serves to do what? Create emphasis. Yeah. Repetition is a linguistic device that's used to create emphasis. Dying, you will not die. The double use of the word die in this... And so like here, my, my card's on the table. I think the English Bible translates this well. I don't think you're missing anything by not knowing Hebrew. Uh, surely you will not die is the surely is the emphasis that's intended here. Dying you will not die though makes me... And so I'm, 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 I was wrestling with this for days and, I, and I, here's what I think. I think that there's something here of a death that is not the death that we expect. There, there's dying and then there's dying, dying, right? Like that's, that's the double use of dying. Like you're not gonna die, die. That's, that's essentially what the serpent says. Like you're not gonna die, die. It's not dying, dying, but it is death because God's not a liar. Death begins, and it's not the physical death that they might have expected. So maybe they feel like they've gotten away with it a little bit, but unbeknownst to them, the death process has begun. And this is the death that they hand down to all mankind. This is the death that we inherit from our first parents, Adam and Eve. The death that is not physical death. So to die the death that is not truly dying is to live a life that is not truly living. Half-dead living is not true living. And so I think, I think that we were created for true living. But I wonder if many of us haven't settled for merely breathing. Are we so contented with breathing that we've missed out on what it means to be truly living? God gave them boundaries. God gave them order. And because of the choices that they made, they implicitly chose chaos instead. But thank God, thank God, that he does not deal with us according to our chaos, but according to his character. What happens next is, and I've got to summarize a big chunk of it, they take, they eat, and Scripture says their eyes are opened, and they knew that they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together to make coverings for themselves. Immediately, immediately after this, the story goes next to what once was comforting and now elicits fear. Verses eight and nine. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? Where are you? God asks not because he needs information. He asks because Adam needs introspection. Adam needs to take a good hard look in the mirror. Adam, where are you? God knows where Adam is and what he's done. Adam needs to come face to face with where he is and what he's done. So God asks, where are you? Today, here, how do you answer this question? Where are you? Do you honor him with your lips, but your heart's far from him? 
Like, are you here physically, but mentally and even emotionally, you're totally somewhere else? Like, you're kind of checked out. You're just here because, well, it's Christmas time. Someone invited you. It's, it's kind of expected that you would come to church around Christmas. And you don't want to be that Christian who only comes on Christmas Eve and on Easter, so you're kind of like creating a buffer for yourself. Where are you? Where are you really? Are you hiding behind spiritual platitudes? People come and talk to you and, hey, how are you doing? Oh, I'm blessed. I'm so blessed. When really you're busted and you're just too afraid to own it, too ashamed to admit it, because you feel like you've been in this faith thing for long enough that you shouldn't continue to fall into these patterns of sin that you continue to fall into and so rather than own it and let somebody in so that they might help you kind of work through it and maybe suffering some of the embarrassment that it would cost for you to do that you would rather just keep them on the outside and, and feed them the christianese that you think they expect i'm blessed and highly favored i am the head and not the tail i'm above only and never beneath hallelujah king jesus you know, I was driving in my car the other day and I was praying. I was deep in prayer. Silliness. And, and like, hey, like, I hope, I actually, I, I actually hope that that's your story. But I hope that your conscience isn't so seared that you don't feel conflicted about telling that to someone when it's patently untrue. It's okay to not be okay. Hey, look at me. Look right at me. I need you to hear me so clearly. It's okay to not be okay. Just don't expect to stay there. It's okay to not be okay, but don't expect to stay that way. God won't leave you there. He deals with you not according to your chaos, but according to his kindness. And it is the church, it is the body of Christ, it's fellow believers who God so often uses to pull you out of the funk. It's okay to not be okay. Just don't get comfortable there. Adam and Eve both brought excuses. Adam points to Eve. The woman, the woman you gave to me, by the way. <laughs> Eve points to the serpent. The serpent, and she doesn't say it, but it's kind of implied, the serpent that you created. And in the end, God lays out that there are consequences for this chaos. For the man, the ground is cursed. What was work has become toil. He also tells the man that he will return to the ground out of which he was taken. And what is that except for the death penalty? You will die. For the woman, she will endure pain and childbearing and conflict in her marriage. But what about the serpent? I want you to listen to this. Listen to what the Lord says. Because you have done this, Cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Did you catch that? A promise. A promise. You ever do this, parents? 
You ever, you ever look and you're talking to one of your kids, but you're addressing the other one? Listen, if he ever goes in your room like that again, you come find me, okay? You do this? You, you've had, or you, so we've all been kids before, right? Your parents have done this. Hey, sweetheart, would you just remind me if my daughter ever slams her bedroom door again, I just don't want to forget, would you remind me to just pop it off the hinges? That's an actual story in my home. <laughs> Addressing the serpent, God makes a promise to Adam and Eve. In the midst of their predicament, God offers a promise and he addresses it to the adversary because for every problem, God makes provision. For every predicament, he has a promise. Behold your predicament, but here in Genesis 3.15, behold God's promise and it's so much better than it looks on the surface. The promise is that there would be a man who would literally be, other translations render this, the seed of woman. Now, I don't know if you know how biology works. Women don't have seed. This one would be the seed of woman who would, and again, uh, different translations render this differently, who would either bruise the head of the serpent or strike the head of the serpent or crush the head of the serpent, even if his heel is bruised, struck, or crushed in the process. So the injury to the serpent is incapacitating, and the injury to the, the one to come would just be to his heel. It would just be relatively superficial. This is called... Um, in, in theological circles, the first gospel, the proto-euangelion in Greek, the first gospel. This is the first time in scripture that we see a hint from the garden to the cross. The promise of one who would be the because there would be no male seed to produce this child. This child would be conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. This one would crush the head of the serpent even if his heel was injured in the process. In their moment of bad news, God gives them good news. In the midst of their predicament, God issues a promise because God deals with us not according to our chaos, but according to what? His character. What is his character? He's faithful. He's kind. He's merciful. He's gracious. And in the midst of the chaos that humanity created, God looks at them. He says, oh, I wish you hadn't done that. But since you did, since you did, here's what we're going to do. I, I, I've, I've got to cast you away from the tree of life because I won't leave you here. I, I can't let you take and eat of the tree of life lest you be stuck like this forever. I, I, I've got to fix it. 
He's going to make it right. He's going to rescue them. And for today, He's going to rescue them from, himself, from themselves. Among the members of the Trinity, God utters one of, the, one of a very limited number of incomplete statements in all of Scripture. Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever, there's no completion of that statement. It's almost like God's grief is so deep in this moment that he can't finish what he was going to say. He just does it. Therefore, the Lord God sent them out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. Behold our predicament. Garden, away from the tree of life, away from the presence of God, no longer able to walk with him like you would walk with a friend, away from the purpose for which we were created. And now what? What do we do now? We need, we need someone who can get us access back to the Father. We need someone who can get us access back to the tree of life. We need someone who can rescue us from death. Death is coming for us. The wages of sin is death. It's coming for all of us. We need someone to rescue us from an eternity apart from the goodness of God in hell. We need, we need someone who can come to make it right. Behold your predicament. It's broken. It's too broken. You can't fix it. Knowing that you can't fix it, God says, I'll fix it. I'll make it right. I'll make a way. I'll bring you back. And so, in a place called Bethlehem, in a sleepy shepherd's town, a child is born laid in a manger this child is the one he's the one who will crush the head of the serpent he's the one who will make a way for us to be right with the father this is the one who's going to make a way for us to have access again to the tree of life this is the one who's going to make payment for the forgiveness of your sins and mine and Adam and Eve's sins in the garden this is the one This is the one who will be injured as he crushes the head of your adversary and mine. This is the one. So the invitation this Christmas, this week, and for the next four weeks, the invitation is to come close and behold, there's more to the manger than meets the eye. Behold your predicament. Behold God's promise. Behold His provision. And behold your Prince of Peace. 
He's the one that we've needed all along. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you. You deal with us not according to our chaos, but according to your kindness. According to the riches of your kindness and mercy and love for us. Our chaos deserved eternal punishment, eternal separation from you. But your love for us was greater. You met us there. You meet us here. And so, Lord, this morning we come and we confess. We too have chosen disobedience. We too have believed the lie. Forgive us, Lord. Grant rest to our weary souls. Without you, we're a mess. Would you hold us together? We love you. We pray this in Jesus' name. All God's people agreed and said, Amen. Thank you, Lord.